Welcome to episode 51 of Breakout Culture. I'm Ed Vasey, none other than the culture editor of Country and Townhouse magazine. And I'm Charlotte Metcalf. I'm the associate editor at the magazine. Our first guest today is the actor Nathaniel Parker, perhaps best known for his role as Inspector Lindley in the BBC crime drama. I have to make a confession that he's a very old family friend and I've watched his rise to fame with great delight ever since 1989 when I took my mother to see him play Bassanio alongside Dustin Hoffman in Peter Hall's production of The Merchant of Venice. Now he's back on stage, obviously having been in loads of plays between now and then, at the Gielgud Theatre playing Henry VIII in The Mirror and the Light, which as I'm sure all our listeners know is the final part of Hilary Mantel's trilogy. Nat first played Henry VIII in 2014 in both Wolf Hall and Bring Up the Bodies, winning a 2015 Laurence Olivier Award for Best Supporting Actor and a Tony nomination when the show moved to Broadway. We're delighted he's back as Henry VIII and even more delighted that he's with us on our podcast. Hello, Nat. Hello, Charlotte. Gosh, what a lovely intro. Except for when you said very old friend. I, I worried there. So. I, I, do, I do have a feeling I'm probably the oldest person ever to play Henry VIII, but um, I'm trying not to look it. It is brilliant. It's, I love the idea of Charlotte watching you in that 1989 production of The Merchant of Venice before I was even born. Oh, yeah. But right. it's amazing. Hey, 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 step back. I mean, Just step I back know. from that microphone right now. <laughs> Anyway, it's brilliant to have you on. <laughs> brilliant to have you on. I am coming to see it on the 3rd of November. So Jolly good. I'll hang out by the stage door. Please autograph my programme. Yeah, we're not uh, actually allowed anybody in our dressing rooms anymore. Oh, yeah, we're going to talk about that. Let's hold that okay. thought because we want to hold come back thought. to theatre and COVID. But first of all, we want to talk yes. about play. You yes. and Ben Miles, who's also played Cromwell all the way through. You must be virtually blood brothers by now. What's it like coming together again as a cast? to play essentially the same parts, but moved on a trite. Yes, I mean, Charlotte mentioned Inspector Lindley, which is something as a telly actor you get a chance to do, is to come back and uh, redo a role. Uh, you know, I did four episodes a year of that for seven years. So I got a chance to uh, grow with him and have a backstory that developed. You so rarely get that chance on stage. If you come back and do the play again, you do the play again. You don't usually get a chance to do the third part of a trilogy. And the first two, so it, it felt like one go when we did the first two books, which actually I think in 2013 we started. And it was, uh, that was quite a thrill because you get to the end of Wolf Hall and you think, okay, what happens next? And you're straight there. Two hours later, you could come and see the second version. This has been six years since we last finished. And it is a rather extraordinary feeling coming back to it and recreating it. I've missed him. I've missed playing Henry enormously. Um, and uh, I, I think to warm up slightly, I, I had a, I, I went out for a drink with Ben, and I confess by mistake it slipped out of my mouth. I said, "Well, do you remember when we did Henry back at Stratford?" And he went, "I'm sorry." <laughs> I, mean, I mean, Wolf Hall. Um, <laughs> Wolf Hall, bring up the body. It's not Henry. It's not called Henry at all. <laughs> 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 and, and I just, I've always seen it as mine. You know? um, it was uh, it was all encompassing, and it was a groundbreaking part for me to play. Uh, um, I was really flattered one day on the second show we did in Stratford, which is at the Swan Theatre, which I think is possibly the best theatre in the world. I love it. Tiny, four hundred and fifty seater or something, and you could see every member of the audience. And I did look at every member of the audience at some point in the play, and Tony Cher was sitting there, and um, he came back afterwards and said, "There's not often." an actor gets a part 
which is you know, his part. And this is yours. And I felt, I mean, I literally, I'm nearly gushing thinking about it, actually. It was such a lovely thing to say because it gave me confidence. That's what Jeremy Heron, the director, who's directed this latest one as well, uh, gave me. Um, he gave me the chance to believe in what I was doing in a way I never had on stage or screen. I, you know, I've always been quite a confident young guy, but actually when it came to believing I was any good, no, not so much. He's the, he's the reason I had any success with that part at all, I think. Um, he's quite a fabulous director. It's slightly different with Ben this time because it's, um, it's co-written by him. No. So there's a slightly, oh. there's a slightly um, weird angle that every now and then he says, just crossing the line, and he goes over and talks um, from a writer's point of view. <laughs> I mean, the book is about the size of a house. It's so enormous. <laughs> and so I was going to ask how it all got condensed, you know, without yes. losing that really complex sort of sense of intrigue. Who wrote it with Ben? Well, Hillary. Hillary, Hillary wrote the play with Ben, I think is probably the way to put it. And it's quite interesting seeing some of the audience reaction to that because Hillary's words are kind of sacrosanct. Yeah. Um, you know, they're amazing. And uh, I, mean, I, saw, I saw an article in the paper yesterday, I think it was, saying Cromwell wasn't like that at all. Well, that's your opinion. Hillary's done an awful lot of research as well. And yeah. she thinks he was like this. And I, 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 I tend to trust Hillary for a lot of it. She tells me if she's made something up. You know, uh, like I, there was a, there's a couple of lines later on, I say, and I said, listen, do you think I could put this? She said, no, he didn't say that. And I'm thinking, oh. well, you know who didn't say that. You weren't there. <laughs> and she said, well, no, I've seen the letters. That's oh. not what we wrote. And so, my God, I'm actually saying Henry's lines. So I can't argue with some of it. <laughs> but with Ben, there's this, you know, I, I, sometimes I do want to say, can I just add a yes to that? And the answer is a firm no. This play stretches him as an actor uh, more than I think the first two did. It takes him to uh, a, a couple of emotional places he, he didn't go to on the other ones. And uh, yeah, it's a beautiful performance, I have to say. Really good. Uh, I'll be careful how I phrase this because you said you sort of, in, you know, that part of Henry was made for you. So I don't <laughs> want to make this sound like a Mrs. Merton style question. <laughs> at this stage of the story, Henry has divorced one wife, beheaded another, <laughs> married a third. Good point, Ed. Good by point. All of, by all accounts, you portray him as a petulant child, a proper king baby. Was this your idea? Well, the fact that my wife, who's my only wife, <laughs> has taken to calling me Hazard Otto, um, <laughs> Hazard Otto the baby, is, no, there's, there's very little relation. I do strut around as a child sometimes, I have to say and I do get huffy, but um, no, uh, but part of, the, part of the joy of where we are now is I, I saw Hillary the other day and, um, you know, she's, she, she's just adorable, Hillary, um, as a person. She's so, uh, she, she's so absolutely there and generous to us as a cast. And she will say things to me like, you know, I, I, when I'm writing the book, if I can't hear your voice saying it, it doesn't go in. You know, so there's a certain amount which has actually been written for us, um, and and that's been that's been joyous. Um, but I yeah, wasn't I thought about that that you've done the play, the first two plays, while yeah, she she's now got pictures. The third book, and there's yeah. this incredible interaction between how the play has now influenced the book. Yes, absolutely, and interesting. I mean, working with Ben, of course, for the play, 
she's written around Ben completely. Ben, there's no words there that wouldn't come out of Ben's mouth because that's, what, you know, they've been created there. Um, but there is an interesting phenomenon that a couple of people, audience members have said to me, which is um, around one or two different bits, which is, that's not what they did in the book. <laughs> and actually, you really miss it. And I'm going, okay, this is not a normal adaptation by somebody else. This is an adaptation by Hillary. And Hillary has put it in the play that way round. So mm. suck it up, basically. <laughs> if you don't like it, you don't like it. Cool. But it's, you know, it's, it's a real joy. And having Hillary there, it's a bit like having Oscar Wilde in the room if you're rehearsing importance. You know, the, the depth of knowledge that she has, the understanding of characters and atmosphere, it's just phenomenal. Well, that, is, that is very interesting because how does hit you know, you, you talk about an actor having to sort of behave and not say my character wouldn't say that. How does Hillary and Jeremy interact? Very good point. Well, actually, um, there's the, Jeremy's very deferential to Hillary because she's such a sodding genius, but he will often just defer to her. And there are times she will just lean over halfway through a scene because something's occurred to her, and he'll say, uh, Hold on, guys, a sec. Hillary just wants to say something and she'll whisper in his ear, shall I talk about Tudors and sex? Yeah, okay, guys, we're just going to have half an hour on Tudors and sex. <laughs> Can that be our next podcast, please? <laughs> well, we should get Hillary on on Tudors and sex. She is incredible. You know, it was only legal to make love in the missionary position. What? It was only legal oh, wait, to do that. I completely understand that. <laughs> you'd have to go you'd have to go to, to confession if you did anything else <laughs> but what I always think is amazing is she gets all those atmospheres doesn't she she knows what you know Cardinal Wolseley's cupboard smells like yeah. and his when you open his trunk there's that great thing when when you know his trunks get open and there's all the smell of cedar and all sorts of, how does right, she know yes. all that it's all that 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 very visceral stuff that, well, that she she's knows so good the trunk at. was made of cedar uh -huh. So she then says that because it, yeah. it, it would all have been listed down and inventoried um, at times. But, you know, there's, there's, often if there's something I say, I, I'm having trouble with this. Oh, yeah, well, I made that bit up. <laughs> 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 That's not history. That's me. Um, and she's quite open about that. She doesn't try and disguise stuff, um, which I think does piss a few historians off. Can I quickly just segue into, well, it's not segue, it's crunching gears, but ask you about COVID and theatre because you mentioned en passant that as I hung around the stage door and begged for your autograph, I would be sort of, presumably bundled away. I mean, what, what is the atmosphere no. like as you go back to theatre no. and COVID rules and the audience and what's, what's back to normal and what's not? I think a lot of, I, th I think individual theatres have their own codes, but uh, I look out from my stage and I will see 30% masks, that's all. There's still certainly COVID hesitancy about actually coming to the theatre. Uh, despite the fact that we are open and we're saying we're open for business. And that's quite tough when you've got a cast of 22, 23, <laughs> and you're saying, we need bums on seats, please. Backstage, um, you're not allowed, we're not allowed to have guests in our dressing room, which Ben went, oh, thank God. And I went, oh, damn. <laughs> um. <laughs> well, at least you're at least you're on the stage again, which we're Yay. delighted about. And we can't wait to come and see you. It is such fun. I, I hope you enjoy it because it's... Um, it's funny. I've had so many people come up and say, I didn't realise it was going to be so funny. Yeah, it's, it's a wonderful experience. I, I, it's just about as much fun as I've ever had on stage. And oh, we can't wait to come and see you. Thank you so much, Nat, for coming on and telling us all about it. Pleasure. You're a star. Pleasure. Thank you. Pleasure. Put a microphone in front of an actor and we won't stop. <laughs> yeah.
Our next guest is the historian Natalie Livingston, who founded the Cliveden Literary Festival in 2017. There are a lot of literary festivals around, but Cliveden has a distinction of being hailed by Ian McEwan as probably the world's best small literary festival. You should probably get it sponsored by Carlsberg, Natalie. <laughs> Alain de Botton has called it the most dignified and beautiful literature festival on the planet. With the great historian Andrew Roberts at the helm as president, the festival is run by an impressive committee which comprises Natalie herself. Uh, it includes Catherine Osler, the author and magazine editor, the historian Simon Seagrab Montefiore, and in the US, Tina Brown is the honorary chairman. This year's festival will run next weekend, the 23rd and 24th. It boasts me as a guest and also a great lineup from Emerald Fennell, General Petraeus, and Amar Towles to David Badil, Chibundu, Anuzu, and Sebastian Folks. I should have said, uh, it sounded odd me saying I'm a guest. I mean, I'm going as a punter, is what I meant. Anyway, we are delighted that Natalie's with us to tell us all about it. Good morning, Natalie. Hi, thank you very much for having me. Apologies for my croaky voice. Oh, well, hello, Natalie, and we're sorry you've got a cold, but thank you so much all the more for coming on our podcast. And this must be about the fifth or sixth time we've talked about Clifton on this podcast, as so many amazing things go on there. I mean, apart from it being an incredibly beautiful setting for your literary festival, it's obviously one of Britain's most important stately homes. And your interest in it goes back to way before the festival, because in 2015, your book, Mistresses of Clifton, Three Centuries of Scandal, Power and Intrigue in an English Stately Home, was published. It's obviously a house packed with stories for a historian like you to have got your teeth into. But I'm intrigued to know what first really drew you to Clifton. Well, I think it's impossible not to be seduced by Cliveden. It's the most beautiful, seductive, romantic, mysterious house. And I actually walked into Cliveden in April 2012 and I looked around the, the uh, portraits around, on, in the Great Hall and I saw these fascinating looking women. And I just thought, do you know what? I really, really want to know the story of the women who've lived here. Anyway, that's what piqued my interest and that was what my book was about. I feel close to Cliveden partly because obviously I know you, but also because uh, William Astor, who I think grew up there, was, is my constituent, the great William Astor. But also, weirdly, Stanford, I think before uh, you came to Cliveden, it was the Stanford University's UK campus. That and my is uncle, correct. You are my uncle, My uncle was a professor there, so I used to swim in that swimming pool as a teenager. So that's oh, very exciting. Wow. Anyway, well, so that, I think, that you know, swimming they're... pool is quite steeped famous. in history. <laughs> so was there some certain women have swum in that pool? <laughs> was well, probably the most famous swimming pool in the country. Yeah, I, I think it probably. I think it's probably one of the most famous swimming pools in the world when you think about it. Other festival programmers will be very jealous of the fact that, as a, despite being a very small festival, you've got some very big names. So, for example, Emerald. Fennel, who has to be one of the hottest names around at the moment. I mean, we know her dad, Theo Fennel, but we can't get anywhere near her. How do you tell us a bit more about the lineup and how you attract these big names? Well, I think it's nothing to do with us. I think it's all about that seductive quality of Cliveden. I think, you know, we're extremely fortunate that these wonderful people want to come to Cliveden. I think it's about the international renown and reputation of Cliveden. So, you know, we've got an extraordinary lineup this year. I don't know if any of you are fans of Fowder, you know, the, the amazing um, Israeli spy show on Netflix. We but love we've got it. I'm a massive, massive oh. fan. Yes. I can't remember which one recommended it to which one. I think 
Charlotte may have recommended it to me, but it was one of the first box sets I binged during lockdown. It's brilliant. It is exceptional. And I was obsessed with the central protagonist, um, Doron, played by Lior Raz, who also yes. wrote it. And he's strangely coming. attractive, strangely attractive, chubby guy. I don't think there's anything strange about his attractiveness. I wouldn't call him chubby. He's more muscular. I think that's really unfair of you. So we're going to meet. We're going to meet him. I can't believe that. That's so exciting. I'm coming. I am that's so, it. That's it. I'm coming. Yeah. I mean, that's, that is definitely worth making that 30 minute journey from London for. It's only 30 minutes. I mean, the school run takes longer than that. Um, so, yeah, we've got... Um, that's, I'm super excited about that. We've got Conrad Black and Barbara Amiel coming, who I think will have some fascinating and salacious stories to tell. Yeah, that'd be amazing. Keep going. More. This is getting better and better. Oh, more. we've got David Baddiel talking about his book, um, Jews Don't Count. That's going to be really fascinating. We've got this amazing panel on novels. Um, we've got the fantastic Turkish um, novelist Alif Shafak coming to speak. She is a magical human being. I just, I could listen to her talk for hours and hours. I'm going to speak um, about my new book for the first time with Hannah Rothschild, which is very nerve wracking and super exciting. We've got a panel on political diaries, which is going to be super fun. With, and um, now who Andrew have you got? Oh, who have we got? Who haven't we got? So we've got Dominic Sambrook, we've got Simon Heffer, we've got Sasha Swire, we've got Emma Soames, and we've got Michael Gove. So that is going to be quite, quite the panel. Um, we have got a panel on Empire, which is going to be really, really interesting. I'm very much looking forward to that. Uh, we've got Kate Bingham, um, who is coming to talk about how she brought the vaccine to Britain. And I'm so excited to have her and very honoured that she's making the time to come. Um, we've got a brilliant panel on royalty. So we've got Cam the brilliant, brilliant Camilla Long from the Sunday Times. We've got A.N. Wilson, you know, practical, practically historical royalty. Um, Camilla Tomini um, and Robert Hardman talking about how history um, will define the second Elizabethan age. We've got panels on keeps. Um, we've got a panel on history versus herstory with some fantastic, some of my favourite historians, um, Hallie Rubenhold, Sol David and Dan Jones. Um, we have got a panel on culture wars with Lionel Shriver and McElvoy, Candace Owens and Sam Leith. I love the sound of all these panels. I did, uh, I reviewed Sasha Swire's diaries in which I get a couple of um, honourable mentions. But what I love about um, all of this is, is it sounds very, very curated. It sounds like you've been thinking very hard about kind of things that will really grab people's attention. Well, actually, you know, that's one of my favourite things about doing the festival is that I'm lucky enough to be able to sit in a room with three of the most brilliant people I've ever met, Catherine Osler, Andrew Roberts and Simon Siegberg Montefiore. And practically a day, the, the week after the festival is, is over, we start planning the next festival. And yeah, they're very, very heavily curated and and. and hopefully we have a great mix. Well, I think that's what's so great about your festival because um, it, it's it's small, but it's perfectly formed. You know, it's small enough to be that literary and political salon that, that you wanted it to be to chime with Clifton's own history. And, and we've talked a lot on this podcast recently about, you know, the advantages of tightly curating things, you know, not to make them too vast and overwhelming. Are you going to try and keep it small or do you plan to grow it? Well, 
I think the most important thing isn't size, but I think it's about quality. So I don't have any plans to grow it or shrink it or do whatever. I just want to keep the quality superb. Presumably, like everybody else, the pandemic has changed things in one way in the sense that you've now got a sort of global audience that can beam in. Have you gone down that route? Well, um, all our sessions are available on YouTube. In, in the name of keeping it very intimate, we haven't gone down that route yet. Um, because, um, you know, that there were the option, there was the option last year to do um, a virtual festival. And we decided not to because we wanted to maintain that authenticity and intimacy. I just think now, post-pandemic, I think we all appreciate so much having these live events and having real people speaking and being able to sit next to people and interact. I just, I think it's, you know, kind of, it, it's so, it makes it so much more special. Brilliant. Thank you, Natalie. Thank you. Many apologies to our listeners for the slightly dodgy sound in that last recording, but Ed was recording from Cheltenham Literary Festival, so there was a little bit of interference, so apologies for that. Now, as anyone who's been in London recently knows, the city's awash with art fairs. We have Freeze opening last week alongside Start at the Saatchi and others, and they're still carrying on next week. Our sponsor, Martin Miller's Gin, is the official drinks partner of the Affordable Art Fair. This opens on Thursday in Battersea and it runs until Sunday. At the fair, Martin Miller's Gin has commissioned an experiential artwork. That is not a gin and tonic, but it is an experiential artwork. But it does have a pop-up bar, which has created two new serves. For those of you who aren't as on the board as I am, a serve is the current word for a cocktail. I did not know that. This is very exciting. I can't wait to take someone out and say, what, what can I... Oh, well, I don't know what I'd say. Anyway, one of these serves is the Bubble Bramble inspired by a surreal work of art by Katharina Young. It's pink, it's fruity, and it boasts a huge bubble on the top, created with a flavour blaster. Well, I'm definitely going to be trying one of those, and I'm definitely visiting the walkthrough art installation that Martin Miller has commissioned, which explores the themes of purity and transformation, which lie at the heart of the gin itself. The installation is called Fluid Form, and it's by two emerging artists, the Spanish painter, sculptor and sound artist Violeta Maya, and Greek designer and visual artist Perseus Hagianiset. I'm sure I pronounced that wrongly <laughs> but luckily to tell us more about uh, those two artists and the installation and the affordable art fair in general is the fair's UK director Elizabeth Delluct. Good morning Elizabeth. Morning thanks to be here it's really good to speak with you. Before we talk about the Martin Miller Commission let's talk about what's different about the affordable art fair. The clue is obviously in the name. So many fairs claim to be accessible with great entry points for those who don't necessarily know a huge amount of art but want to find out more. But how do you differentiate the affordable art fair in what is actually becoming quite a crowded market? Well, indeed, I've worked uh, at lots of different art fairs in my uh, tenure, but um, the affordable definitely stands out because we are capped at £6,000. Affordability is relative, but it's definitely a sort of gateway uh, entry into art world collecting. And we have a lot of fun. We support emerging artists and galleries of all sizes. So it's um, definitely something for everyone where we are. We've got three fairs a year, two that take place in Battersea and one that we build a purpose-built tent for in Hampstead Heath in May. So um, yeah, it's just really good to be back. My my parents were very keen art collectors and, and I grew up with art on every wall, but I did actually start buying art properly from the Affordable Art Fair. So it's really interesting what kind of art you have there 
this year. And you've answered the question already about how affordable it is. But so can you carry on and tell us a bit more about the kind of artists we'll see there and also about the Martin Miller installation? So um, this year we have, we're back up to about 100 galleries from about nine, I counted today, nine different countries. So for us, that is fantastic. Um, Amongst our 101 galleries, we have some really fantastic photography this year coming up. Uh, There's a great gallerist called Kerry Scott, who will be presenting works by Bindi Vora and Berto Herrera, two really, really cool um, photographic artists. Um, we've also got some really beautiful new abstract figurative works from one of our fair favorites, uh, artists called Henrietta Debray. Also, we have uh, the uh, this year's um, exhibition from recent graduates. So we've teamed up with uh, designer and artist Pascal Anson, who you may know, he, he had quite a YouTube following over, uh, over the pandemic of, of um, getting the family to draw together. Um, so anyway, he's um, scoured the UK's um, art schools to find this year's best and brightest. So we've got 10 different artists coming for our recent graduates exhibition, all exploring a theme of seeing the extraordinary. So it's it's a real celebration of ordinary things made extraordinary. So we can't wait for this recent graduate exhibition to come back. And then obviously that, that ties us in really nicely with uh, the return of um, our uh, official drinks partner, Martin Miller's Gin, who, as you say, are doing this fantastic uh, installation in the atrium at Battersea Evolution. Um, so how this came about is we were speaking with Martin Miller now two years ago uh, about uh, the theme of transformation. Uh, they were getting ready to do a new branding exercise and we put out an open call across all of our galleries and invited artists to respond to the theme of transformation. We whittled it down to a short list and indeed they uh, selected a, a, a tag team duo, uh, Violetta Maya and Persis Hajiani, uh, and they are absolutely brilliant uh, together. They've done um, quite a lot of public commissions globally, but this is, as you say, it is, it's a walkthrough, it's a fully immersive uh, head to toe soundscape, uh, visual light extravaganza. It's a quiet space within the fair. It, it involves the installation involves light and how it refracts through ice sculptures with a all along a, a soundtrack of sort of crackling, you know, basically ice melting. So it's almost like being in a gin tonic. It responds beautifully to the art in isolation, which is a a theme that Martin Miller are picking up with uh, a series of uh, commissions that they're doing this year. So these artists really um, didn't want to necessarily play on the negative elements of being isolated, but the opportunities for introspection and mindfulness and how we've all sort of transformed ourselves in the last you know, 16, 18 months. Oh, it sounds really exciting. I mean, I was very interested to see at Startup how many, even though it's supposedly a, 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 a great venue for emerging artists, there were quite a few very established artists like Tracy Emin or Julian Opie or Bridget Riley selling mm. work there as well. Have you got any work by established artists that they're selling at affordable prices? We do. Um, we ha- we work with Manifold Editions and also Jealous Gallery, who definitely have some some household names. I would say, um, Jealous Gallery have just released a new David Shrigley print. Everyone loves David Shrigley. He's a you know text based artist who who was on the fourth plinth, if you remember, in Trafalgar Square with his sort of thumbs up. And then we we do I think some have some Connor Brothers and some Charming Bakers. So you really don't you you can pick up a, a sort of household name for 
for very, very affordable prices. I mean, it's interesting. I mean, I started my the first ever job I had showing the sort of privileged life I've led is, um, <laughs> uh, was at the Contemporary Art Society Art Supermarket. And that was in 1985. And people would come in, buy a picture, and then they would literally, you'd take it off the wall and wrap it up in bubble wrap. And they would take it away in a big plastic bag. But have you found that online has, is uh, competing with you or is it complementary? Well, at Affordable, we were pretty lucky in that we didn't have to recreate the wheel. We have a simultaneous online art uh, marketplace. No question, our online sales have absolutely skyrocketed. And there is definitely something for every taste, every medium, every price point. We've got ceramics, sculpture, prints and editions, all sorts of things. So you're right. I wouldn't say we competed, thankfully. Um, that is definitely the challenge for us now is to work out how we can dovetail the two together. I, I think people are still really keen to have that human connection. And that's why I do this. It's 100% you know, what, what brings it to life for me is, is, is meeting those artists face to face, having warm conversations with them, understanding where they are in their practice and where they want to be in their careers and learning how to support them. And that is so crucial to who we are. That's, you know, as affordable art fair, but it's also in the, uh, the brand DNA of Martin Miller's gin too. So that worked out really well for our dovetailing. Oh, it sounds fantastic. Well, I can't wait to go and I can't wait to try a, a bramble bubble cocktail. <laughs> <laughs> well, we can't wait to see you. It's... It's got your name on it, Charlotte. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much. Thank you for so coming. much. It's been wonderful. We can't wait to go. Well, thank you, Ed. It was really be... lovely chatting with you. That's all we've got time for this week, but a huge thank you to all our guests and, of course, to Martin Miller's Gin for their support and sponsorship. Don't forget to visit their cocktail bar and try a bubble bramble at the Affordable Art Fair. And if that gives you a taste for arty cocktails, it's actually London Cocktail Week until the end of October. And if you visit their website at londoncocktailweek.com, you can find all the bars and places serving really unusual and art-inspired delicious cocktails. Well, nothing really beats a straight-up Martin Miller's original gin and tonic, as far as I'm concerned. Please don't forget to visit our website, which is, of course, countryandtownhouse.co.uk, because on the 26th, we're launching a very special edition of Great British Brands, Great British Brands Zero. It's a call to arms for the luxury industry to cut their emissions and sign up to the international campaign Race to Zero. Charlotte is the editor, and in time for COP26, the climate change conference in Glasgow next month, she and her team spoke to 26 industry leaders about how their brands are going about changing the way they do business. It certainly makes for very encouraging reading. So on that note, I'm off for an encouraging gin and tonic. See you next week. Goodbye.